Yeah, give it up for my wife. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I want to assure you uh, that I uh, did not ask her last minute to do that. That was a month ago. And she was like, because I know some of y'all that some of y'all have had those moments where I've been like, hey, we got someone that wasn't able to come and I got X, Y, and Z. Uh, that did not happen. And she, uh, I always like ask her in, in terms of anything that I ask her to do, I do it with kind of this awareness of the fact that she has our six-month-old son kind of hanging on her at this season of our lives. And, uh, and yesterday I was like, hey, you're still good for that? Uh, I, I can find someone else if necessary. And she was like, I can do it. And I was like, I love my wife. So yeah, just shout out to her. Now, um, hey, a couple of things uh, that are slightly comedic before we get into this time uh, in the Word. The first is, I know it's summer for two reasons. One, half our people are out of town. The second is, I've never seen this many men's toes out at one time in my life. Because as I look around this morning and I watch the brothers come in, I was like, that's a lot of men's feet. I'll say that much. That's a lot of men's feet. That's a lot of hairy toes. I don't know how to process that uh, as I watched y'all coming through this morning. I was like, it's definitely summer. It's summertime for sure because we have abandoned all sense of closed-toed, uh, you know, footing. And uh, we've fully embraced the Chacos at this point. So you ain't going to catch me in the Chacos. You may catch me in some sandals, but them bad boys going to have socks on underneath. So, um, yeah, I ain't telling you you got to do that. I'm just saying, it's not worse. It's not worse. Whoever said that, you're wrong. Repent, turn away. So, um, yeah. <laughs> so I just wanted to point that out because, man, I saw in a lot of hairy toes today. Um, so, yeah, thank y'all for being here, though. I know it's summertime. Everybody kind of planning different things, and, and we're here together. And I love the consistency of meeting together in summer because I just, I do, I just enjoy it. Uh, I enjoy that there is, like, this sporadic, like, today, Dana was like, is. <laughs> You're asking about communion stuff because we had slightly less communion stuff. And I was like, I know the people that are out of town. I'm like 98% sure we're going to be okay. And Xander was like, we're going to have like a classic summer day. And I was like, yeah. And she was like, you think that? But then last week it wasn't. And that little consistency, like despite that like up and down, the consistency of everyone saying like, hey, this is my home where I come to worship God. And I've made a commitment to that is one of the most encouraging things to me, to my heart. And so I want to say thank you, not for being here, not for being part of our church, not even for attending today, but I think rather for committing in your heart to worship and to live in the person of Jesus. And to set aside that time on a Sunday to say, man, I want to do that. I, and so, yeah, I know that we take trips, and I, I'm not, I'm for that idea of rest. Y'all, y'all know that. Um, but at the same time, I appreciate that even when we come back from that, you know, we come back from the trip and we, we settle and we say, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it. I'm going to go. I'm going to worship God. And I just want to say thank you. I just love y'all, and I appreciate that for y'all and from y'all. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and jump into our time in the Word. We're going to uh, talk about Ten Commandments. We're almost done, okay? Last week was Commandment 7. This week is Commandment 8. And Commandment 8 is what? Who knows? Don't steal. That's right. Uh, I know that this has been, I mean, I'm not sure how you've experienced sermon series. It's been refreshing for me. Because if we've worked through it, I feel like I've learned so much about what's actually happening in these. Oftentimes, uh, we've said this uh, kind of week in, week out, but the Ten Commandments are oftentimes so incredibly culture-driven. And so they're so politicized. They're so, they've, they've become a cultural theme, not a, not a Christian or a faith theme. Um, and so we hear about them not in reference to what they actually mean, not in reference to what they provide us in a vision of God, 
but rather in whether they should be put up in a courthouse or whether they should be this or that and whether they are a certain way that you should live. And through the few weeks that we've been working through the Ten Commandments, we've actually seen that, man, I don't think that's why they're provided. They're not provided so that we can see how we should live in order to earn God's approval, but rather this is the way of life that God invites his people into. He said that he didn't give commandments and then save, but in the beginning he saved and redeemed people in Exodus, and then after that he gave his commandments. These are a way of life for God's people to live out. They're not a means of salvation either. They're not the way of life that we say, oh, if we live this way, then we'll be saved. That means that we can't hold people that aren't Christians, can't hold people that aren't God's people accountable to these things. Why? Because these aren't commandments for salvation. Following God, being loved by God, and loving God is the means of salvation. These are the ways of life that God's people that have been saved live out. So these aren't a way of salvation. They, they're God's invitation to continue to grow in knowing him by living out his way of life, by living out, his, living out in a way living in a way that gives us a vision of who God is, and that's what he provides to us in these, in these 10 ideas. So we've been working through that, and I've been really encouraged, but today we're, we're kind of coming to the end, as I mentioned, commandment eight, and commandment eight is do not steal. And I want to work through it, because whereas, you know, uh, Joe made a funny joke this morning, where I was like, we're on commandment eight, and Joe in the, in the pre-service meeting was like, let me guess, it's not quite what we think it is. And I was like, no, it's definitely what we think it is. I think this one is the... Uh, Every week we've been approaching, I've been like, actually, there's a lot going on here. And this week I approached study, and I was like, this is exactly what we think it is. All right, this is, we got this one exactly right. All right, so, uh, so we're going to work through it, though. I still think it's, it's refreshing to approach it and understand what stealing means and, and how powerful this can be when we take a step back and actually try to observe it critically, even if it's not exponentially different than what we thought it was, even if it's not miles different than what we had assumed our whole life. This was something powerful in it for us to be reminded of. And again, something powerful in terms of what it provides us in a vision of God. So let's go ahead and start by reading Exodus 20:15, and then we're going to work through it uh, for a few minutes. So Exodus 20:15 says this. You want to read it with me? One, two, three. Do not steal. That's pretty good. That's profound. All right, so here's the thing. What's going on here? I think I just told you. It's not super crazy. It's not a crazy departure. But it is worth investigating a little bit in order for us to get a good foundation. In Hebrew, this word, steal, has quite a few different meanings. They do all generally point to the idea of taking something, but, but they have really different applications, right? So just list off a few uh, that a, a resource called Hallet. Don't ever buy Hallet. Hallet is one of those things that's a Hebrew... Uh, concordance or, or, or a type of dictionary, and it will confuse you more than it helps you. I managed to navigate through it for this time, though. Just a few words that, that Hallett offers. To steal, deceive, appropriate, which is pretty unique. To be stolen away from, to hide something or to hide something for our advantage. To bring oneself to, either to bring oneself to something secretly or to enter into a place in a stealthy way. So, okay. Let me say this. It's not quite as straightforward as we thought. Maybe it is a little trickier than we imagined. Because, yes, it is about stealing, but the application of this word to the idea of stealing is actually a little bit hard to navigate. There's a lot of different applications that this word brings to us that aren't just, hey, you take something. But rather, maybe you hide something. Maybe you, maybe you cheat in a way. Maybe you 
you enter in or try to position yourself in a secret way. Maybe you hide something to take advantage of something. There's a lot of ways this could be applied. And the thing is, maybe that's a little bit trickier than just straightforward stealing something from a store. Thinking of how challenging this word is, Old Testament expert John Walton, I brought this up, I brought him up before in the series. He writes this, that though the verb used here in the eighth commandment can be used of stealing property, the commandment is much broader in its focus. Issues such as kidnapping, which is referenced a lot in, in the following chapters here, uh, as well as stealing intangibles like dignity, self-respect, freedom, rights are all important. The word is also used for stealing the sense, stealing the sense of cheating. By cheating someone out of something, you are stealing from him. So clearly, do not steal is pointing to something. It's not just simply taking, the, taking someone else's property. But what is it pointing to? I think that, that that's, what's, that's the question here. Um, I think it's pointing to a lot of things. But the thing that I felt convicted about when I was studying uh, is one word. Simple word. We've talked about it in this sermon series before. But I was overwhelmed and overcome by the idea of idolatry and the idea of stealing. I really was. I was overcome by the idea of idolatry within the idea of stealing. What is idolatry? And that, again, is kind of hard to define. We have a lot of words in Christianity that we throw around kind of simply and assume that people know what we're talking about, when in reality, they're a little bit hard to navigate. So what is idolatry? In ancient days, you guys probably know this, there were little statues, big statues, statues that represented some type of deity that wasn't the Hebrew. God. In today's world, the thing is we don't have little statues. You guys aren't carrying, carrying around little statues in your pockets or in your backpacks, which was common in the days that this was written, also common in the days. But the thing is we still elevate things to God's level. Uh, we elevate ourselves, our jobs, our relationships um, to God's level. And, and we look at them and rely on them for things that only God can actually bring. And I think that probably is a oversimplified but satisfactory definition of idolatry for today. That idolatry is anything we rely on for, for, for something or things only God can offer. Anything we rely on for things that only God can offer. And so theft or the commandment not to steal, from my perspective and from studying a little bit, I think it has a lot to do with the idea of idolatry. How? Well, well, I think this plays itself out in two ways here. Um, two types of idolatry, I'll say. And the first one is this. Stealing is particularly connected to idolatry when stuff becomes a god to us. When stuff becomes a god to us. Here's the thing. We all know what it feels like to really, really want something. You've had that feeling before. You, you've wrestled with that feeling. Maybe it was a car. The amount of teenagers that think a car is going to solve all their issues is phenomenal. It is amazing. I was one of them teenagers, right, to be up there thinking like, man, if I had four wheels, my whole life would change. And it's like, bro, you ain't got nowhere to go. What are you out here wanting a car for? You ain't got nowhere to be. You think you're going to hang out with friends? Half of them got to go home by 830. You don't have nothing to do. So it's fascinating that a car for people can, can present so much. There are instances, of course, where a car can make a huge difference. You're trying to get to work and, and Public transportation is not that great, especially communities like Austin and Dove Springs, where I think the public transportation probably runs a little more frequent than other places. But again, hey, so cars can make a big difference, but for so many of us, wherein that difference is not really felt, we can look and be like a car or a certain type of car, a certain tier or level of vehicle, right, would do so much. Maybe it's a house. 
It's a house. You felt that desire of really wanting a house. You have been in that phase either now or at other, por- other times of your life where you have gone to things like college or, or, or been working at a job for long enough, and you have so many peers that are trying to get houses or that are starting to hold up that little sign that says closed and they're in front of their house, and something in you starts being like, I need to get on it. Am I failing or succeeding in life? And then you feel as though the, the, the possession or the ownership of a home is what's dictating whether you're succeeding or whether you're failing in life or maybe a certain amount of money in our savings account that, that we want to have that much so we can feel secure, so that we can feel safe. And these are all material items that mean so much to us because in some way we're relying on those things to provide what only God can offer. But here's the thing, it doesn't stop at material things. It goes to immaterial things, the things that we, we're a little less hard, a little less easy, I should say, to identify. Now, some of us want a relationship. We want to be in a relationship. Sometimes, in extreme cases, we want to be in a relationship with a certain person. That prevents an entirely other challenging set of obstacles to overcome. That, based on that person's availability emotionally, sometimes that person's availability legally. I don't, wanna, I don't want you to... Assume I'm talking about anybody in here because I'm not, but I've, I've been in church long enough to know that the ridiculousness of someone praying for a husband that belongs to another woman or praying for a wife that belongs to another man is, is wild. And the thought that, that there could be a genuine prayer and that God would maybe meet that prayer with a yes is wild. But that's, that's what happens when we get so caught up in these things. For some of us, maybe it's a title, and I want to be a a certain status, and so my title comes up, the type of job. All these things, whether material or immaterial, aren't just random stuff. The thing that we need to know about this is they represent needs. They don't just represent ideas. They don't just represent passions. They don't just represent ambition. They represent needs. They they represent something deeper than just just what's what's on the surface, but but they, they, they represent the desire to be affirmed, loved, acknowledged, the desire to be safe, the desire to be secure. And the thing is, we attach that need to stuff. We attach that need to people. We attach that need to ideas. So that if I get a certain status, then I am admired. Or if I have enough money, I am secure. Or if I have a certain person, I am affirmed. And we walk around trying to figure out how to meet these needs through all of these things, and the things become a God to us. The things, we begin to rely on them because we say, maybe this thing can meet that only God claims to need. As though God, this is, I think this is really important. It's almost like we forget that God promises and provides hope and love and security to those without a car, without a home, without a marriage, without a title, or without anything else. In other words, God doesn't need stuff to provide for you spiritually and emotionally. God doesn't need stuff to provide for you. We just get so caught up in thinking that he needs to provide us stuff in order to meet our needs when really we've just made stuff into a God and we expect that only that thing could meet our needs. But God doesn't need stuff to meet our needs spiritually. He doesn't need stuff to meet our needs maybe even emotionally. I've met some extremely content and happy people who have very little combined, I don't know why I crack like that so much, y'all. I'm sorry, I had to take a pause. I know y'all noticed it. I know I noticed it. I know I wasn't going to be able to move past it without someone smiling and me laughing. So I'm just going to get it out there, and we're going to move on. 
Uh, but I have met very content people who have very little combined with God and feel like they have everything. I've also met some people that have so much but feel like they have nothing. I've met people that have so much. If they have so much, they could spend money for days without, without concern. And yet the emotional contentment in their heart there's nothing there. They could, buy, they could spend money for years, and it wouldn't meet the emptiness that's present. And the thing is, friend, when our hearts are in that type of desperate state, where we feel the thirsting of it, we feel the desire of it, we feel like we can go and get so much, but nothing meets the need, and then we start trying to identify, we start trying to identify little things here and there, an item here, a stuff there, that if we just get that thing, it'll meet something inside of our hearts, tend to do whatever we can to meet those needs. Become like the, the hungry animal in winter, or whatever they say. Searching for something to, to devour. So we'll do whatever it takes to get it, including stealing. And yes, you can take money from a store. That's probably the easiest way we think about this. To be quite honest, though, if you were to look through the entire Bible, and see where physical needs are present, and someone takes something that's not theirs, the Bible gets a little muddy about it, to be quite honest. It's not as straightforward as going, well, that's stealing. You have needs. The Bible actually can kind of, you can kind of get words from Jesus, and you're kind of like, oh, we're trying to figure this out. That's maybe the easiest thing that we think of, but yet it's actually the hardest one to figure out in the Bible, because meeting physical needs like hunger and thirst and housing in the Bible, they get a little muddy because God does desire to meet those needs, but the thing is when we look at our own lives and we go deeper than just stealing something from a store or stealing a loaf of bread or stealing something that we need, right, there's other ways to steal. You can lie on a tax form. You can apply for benefits that you don't need, maybe more seriously, that you don't deserve. Right, you can cheat on a spouse. You can lie about what you have, what you've achieved, how much you've done order to steal the admiration of another person. Again, taking something you don't deserve. Something that won't make you whole. Something that won't meet your need. And here's what it boils down to. That stealing what we don't have shows a greater belief in that thing than in our God. That stealing what we don't have shows a greater belief in that thing than in our God. I, I, I thought of myself as an example here be quite honest, and this is just a few years ago, maybe like last year, like a year and a half, you get the picture. Early on in church planting, no one really has like a very narrowed in vision of where they want to go. You kind of just have a lot of ambition and a lot of passion to see God impact people's lives that you just go out and go, we're going to make disciples. We're going to, and for me particularly, I thought I want to help our community, but I know exactly how we're going to do that. And so what would happen is that when you don't have that narrowed-in vision of this is exactly where we're going, what we want to do is what we want to hope to accomplish. You can go to mentors, you can go to the church planting like networks that you're a part of, and the main question they ask you, in absence of you saying, here's what my win is, here's how I define winning, here's how I define success, they invite you to adopt their own definition of success and go, okay, how many people do you have on Sunday? Okay, how many people do you have in groups? 
And the thing is, these aren't bad things. I'm not saying, I mean, we want to reach people. We want to see people come to know Jesus. But the thing is, when that becomes the only identifiable marker of what a win is for you, then all of a sudden, when I look back, the weight of my heart was, response to this question is going to dictate whether I'm winning or whether I'm losing. The response to this question is going to be whether I'm successful or whether I'm failing. And when that starts to encroach on our hearts, when we start to identify ourselves by those markers, right, it, and in moments we feel overwhelmed by is this success or failure based on, on this one thing, you will inevitably steal. You, you will feel the pressure to steal, and there's oftentimes that we succumb to it. And so I would say I would exaggerate a number here. I would exaggerate a number there. I would say we're doing a little bit better here than we actually were. We were bringing in financially a little bit more here than we actually were. And you might be saying, how is that stealing? Because, again, I was stealing his approval. I was stealing their, their affirmation. I had invested more in them looking at me and saying, you're winning. You're okay. You're good. You're successful. Then in looking at God and saying, what are you calling me to? What do you want from me? Am I winning according to what you have on my life? Or am I winning according to what this person says is a win for me? had more belief in the approval of a stranger than the calling of God in my life. That's what I wrote down. had more belief in the approval of a stranger, because that is oftentimes what these people were to me, to be quite honest, a lot of them. I had more belief in the, the approval of a stranger than I did in the calling of God in my life. And, and now that has changed, right? We have a very distinct vision. We know exactly kind of what we're doing and, and where we're going. and Not what we're doing. I think that's still, I'm still working that out oftentimes. But we know where we're going, and so we're, we're throwing stuff out there to try and get to where we're going. And so when I think about my W now, I'm, I'm asking God, what is the calling you have on my life? What are you calling me to? What are you calling, I think, our church to? And I get to say, okay, we're accomplishing that mission. Uh, does it mean that we're going to do it with 1,000 people or 100 people? I don't know. But I know that what the W is is, is meeting the vision and, and pursuing the vision that we have. So now I can define a W like that according to what I know God is calling me to. The question then becomes, friend, I think in this application, is what is God calling you to? What is God calling you to? What would you look at God and say, this is what you have defined as a win for my life? What you would say is the definition of a success for me? When you're understanding God's heart and God's vision for you, what he's calling you to, things you're passionate about, where you feel like he's placed you in order to do things for him and through him for others, right, that you know this is what God has me in, this is what God is calling me to, then the, those little voices, whether they're intentional or not, I'm not saying these brothers wanted to, like, wanted to put me in an idolatrous situation. My heart put me in an idolatrous situation. But when we're able to identify those wins, we're able to step into those moments where temptation and idolatry and all those things come in and say, hey, be defined by this one moment. We can fight that off. Fight that off by, by understanding God's call, God's, God's desire, right, God's, God's movements in our life. But, man, in the moments when we don't have that, it can be really challenging to navigate those situations. So this is made, again, even, even more difficult because uh, stuff can become a god to us. So stealing is idolatry when stuff becomes a god to us. Uh, but there's one more idea of idolatry I wanted to touch on before we, before we move on. And that's when we become the judge. I think that's the other thing when it comes to stealing, is that we become the judge when we steal. The idolatry that we're guilty of when we steal is that we become 
the judge. I said a second ago, we all know what it's like to really want something. We all know what it's like to long for something, to really desire something. And if you've ever been there, then you likewise know the feeling of burning with jealousy when you see someone else have that thing. And the thing is, I think that's a good indication of when something is becoming idolatry. When you look at someone else and joy or happiness for their blessings or their inheritance, whatever they're getting, whatever they have, when you look at somebody and they have what you want and you're not joyful for them but you're jealous of them, I think you're starting to flirt with idolatry. I know because I'll be there sometimes. I'm not telling you something because I think it's some abstract idea. My heart has looked at people who have things that I want, and instead of being joyful that they have it, I'm jealous that they have it. But have you ever stopped in the moments of jealousy to just think, why? Why am I so jealous? Why am I so envious? And while, yes, you're jealous because you want that thing, I think the bigger reason, maybe the more important reason, because you have become the judge, right? We begin to weigh out how much more we deserve that thing than someone else. How much better you would use it, how much better you would enjoy it, how much more you would appreciate it than the other person, um, right? Maybe, maybe it's about uh, how you've done so much more good than the other person. And so if you've done so much more good, they have not done as much good, then you deserve that thing more. Who's the judge in that situation? You. Maybe it's how you, if you had that thing and not them, you would appreciate it so much more. You'd be so grateful for that type of relationship or that type of opportunity or that type of job or that type of X, Y, and Z. You insert the thing. Right, that, that type of, of, of joy, whatever the case is. And you're like, I would appreciate it so much more. I, I would use it so much better. I, I would, I would, I would, I would, I would all the reasons you would be better with that thing than the other person would. All the reasons, a.k.a. that God has it wrong. All the reasons you would have it better, that you would be better if you just had that thing, are all the very same reasons that God got it wrong in giving them that thing and not you. For all the same reasons God got it wrong when, when you missed out on that thing, but the other person got it. And you see, that's the issue here when it comes to this type of idolatry. When we're the judge, is, is that when we steal, we show that we believe we a better God than God himself. We show that we believe we'd be a better God than God himself. Because God obviously got it wrong by giving that to that person. I deserve it more. He made a mistake. I'm going to correct the mistake. I'd be a better God than him. Several commenters, even on this, and this is from my, I'm throwing this out there to my Bible nerd people, all right? So a few of you that are watching and a few of you that are in this room, several commentators on this verse while I was studying actually mentioned how this specific commandment harkens back to Eve herself in the story of Genesis. How in the Genesis story, Eve takes something uh, that's not hers, it does not belong to her with the intention of becoming like God. And when we steal, we effectively do the same thing. Right? We try to become like God so that we could correct what God has gotten wrong. And I'm going to be honest. For me, I used to do this because y'all are going to laugh at this. I hope y'all laugh at this. 
Y'all might judge me for it. I don't know. Um, I used to do this with church buildings like crazy. Uh, we be in here setting up in in Houston Elementary, and I love me some Houston Elementary. Don't get me wrong. I've grown to really love this place, like really love it. Um, but I definitely had this space and time where I'd be driving around and see like a building that was in a nice location, and like here, lo- and I can't. Oh, it's so bad. I'm gonna say here locally. There's only so many churches you can drive by. But I used to drive by them bad boys and be like, man, if I had that building, if we had that building. We'd be doing this, we'd be doing that. We could do this, we could do that. And what I said in my heart was, God, if you had given us that, so much more would be happening. For your own interest, you got it wrong. You gave them that for the sake of your kingdom, but if you had given me that for the sake of your kingdom, I'd be doing so much more for you. You see, you got it wrong even for the sake of your own kingdom. That's how idolatry works. That's how foolish we can be. That's how much we just dive right into it. That even God's own interest in his kingdom, in helping people, in loving people, in saving people, we can turn up and go, I could do that better than you. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm actively doing when I drive by that building and I go, man, if I had that building, if our church had that building, what kind of craziness is that? The thing is, if you don't have that building, I could still be doing all the things that I thought of. I could still be leading you in doing all the things that I thought of. And now I'm sitting here waiting on a building, acting like it's God's fault, when really it's just me sitting on my hands. That's a part of where, that, that, this, I'll say this started changing right along the time when we started being like, hey, we got this vision for like a resource center. We're going to do this. I, I, we have a plan. <laughs> I always be feeling like Michael Scott when I say this, but we have a plan. It's a six-phase plan, you know, yeah. <laughs> Uh, got a seven-day plan, seven points. No, 40-day plan, 40 points. You know, we got that plan for those of you, the, the office nerds in here. But it's like when that started coming along, we started thinking, okay, we can go to that. This is what our pursuit is, right? How are we going to do it? It doesn't matter. This is what God is calling us to. We don't need a building to do that. We just need to embody the character and heart of God. That's all we need to do. All of a sudden, it was so much less important to have that building, and my heart was so much less important to be the judge and say, if only I had that or they're not doing enough. Again, I land at the place of asking you, man, how can I do that? Here's the thing. So often, we're not picking up what God's offering us, and that's why we're so focused on what's in someone else's hand. We're so focused on what in someone, or we're not picking up what God is offering us, and that's why we're so focused on what's in someone else's hand. So we want to take that instead of picking up and doing the work of what God may be inviting. God is calling us. But here's the thing. That, that sounds, church, a building, that sounds okay. That is what it is. But here's the thing. It's much deeper than that. Example of from my own life, when I'm driving around Dove Springs, forefront of my mind, because that's what I do most of my life. But my... I think it's like when we think about the opportunities that we have, think of the families that other people have. We think about our own loneliness. Instead of cultivating a family around us that may not look like the traditional family we had in our mind, we just sit there brooding in envy of the people that have that instead of cultivating life around us in the sisters and brothers we have that God has given us. 
fact that Jesus has brought people together. And so often, we can find ourselves so frustrated that our life doesn't look like this, that our life doesn't look like that, that X, Y, and Z, that we've, we're missing the idea of what, we're missing, I, I should say, the, the beauty of what's in front of us. So stealing is idolatry when we become the judge, when we desire and we kind of have that thing of, like, I want to be the judge. So what can we do? What can we do? Maybe you, like me, see some of these points, see some of these ideas, and you feel the weight of them because you feel guilty of them. I do too, right? I feel the weight of, of knowing that there are things in my life, there's stuff in my life that becomes a God to me. There's stuff in my life that I can tell is, is starting to, to function in weird ways because I personally can't wait another two days for Amazon to get it to me. I'm like, I'll pay that $2.99 for overnight, right? Like, and I know my heart is doing something weird because my heart is like that thing. Once you get it, everything's going to be so much better. And it's like, that thing costs $20. How is a $20 thing going to make? I don't know what's going on in my voice, y'all. Uh, that, how is that $20 thing going to make such a huge impact in your life? I do that. Maybe, maybe you feel like you've been the judge because, I mean, I've been the judge. I just told y'all that I walked driving around looking at church buildings feeling like that. Maybe you've looked at other people's houses, other people's marriages. Maybe you've looked at other people's families, other people's kids. Maybe you've looked at other people's jobs. Maybe you've looked at, at other people's, I mean, name it, parents, families. And like, God, if I had that. So what can we do? First off, I'm going to say there's a lot you can do. People write books about stuff like this. I ain't going to present to you the end-all, be-all of what you can do. But I do have two things that I know I'm trying to do. The first thing I'm trying to do, and I would encourage you to at least try and do, is to learn our hearts. Learn your heart. Uh, so often, the thing is, I think we need to understand our needs. We need to understand our needs. For that car, for job, relationship, person, building. We need to understand the need that's actually at work when we're longing for that thing, when we want that thing so bad. So easy to trust our feelings. So easy to treat them like a compass. We talked about this in, in a sermon series about emotions, either earlier this year or late last year, forget now, but, um, but, but it's so easy to trust those desires. And the thing is, friend, people have abused this statement, and so I don't want to treat it the way I think it's historically been treated, where it's like every feeling is some type of thing where it's the enemy. It's not. But the heart can be deceitful. It is deceitful. And the thing is, it, it's, I don't want to say that to where you build this thing where you think every emotion I have is the enemy. It's not. The ability to feel is from God, and it reveals your heart. So there's some times where it reveals really beautiful things. Sometimes it reveals really challenging and tough things. But the thing is, in the, in the moments when we don't understand our heart, we don't understand the difference, then everything becomes good. Everything becomes gospel. Everything becomes beautiful. When sometimes, because of the deceit of the heart, that thing is actually hurtful. That thing is actually painful. So we, we have to actually learn what's going on, right? It's our job, empowered by the Spirit of God, to think through what it is we're actually wanting what it is that we're actually pursuing when we have those desires, when we have the longings of our hearts. What is it that you're actually after? What do you want? And I'm not trying to go all notebook on you, but I do think that if you just posed that question to yourself while you were browsing Amazon, if you 
pose that question to yourself while you were flipping through Instagram, if you pose that question to yourself while you were scrolling Pinterest, if you pose that question to yourself while you were looking at realtor.com, if you pose that question to yourself when you were lusting after that person, the realities that come up from it would be wild because they would say so much more than just this type of thing where you feel guilty, but you'd understand that there's probably a hurt, lonely, that God absolutely loves, adores, and wants to meet some needs for, but we're running after a car. We're running after a house. We're ordering something off Instagram. Why are you feeling that? Learning our heart, such a powerful step here. And the second thing, y'all gonna be like, this guy, I always be saying this, but learn God's heart. Learn God's heart. Friend, I'm gonna be honest with you. It's so hard to reconcile our feelings of need when we're wrestling against a warped and messed up idea of who God is. It's so hard to reconcile our needs and why we don't have them when we're wrestling against this warped idea of who God is. And, and here's the thing. When we envision, right, or when, when the God we envision isn't interested in our needs, just his demands, we'll never understand what it means to bring our needs to him. When the God we envision is not interested in our needs, but only his demands, it doesn't ever make sense for us to bring our heart to him. If you're sitting there and all you can really think is about how you're, you're feeling embarrassed, guilty, or shameful because of what you fail to do, instead of recognizing the heart of God to, to love and serve and build you back up, then bringing a broken, guilty heart to God and saying, here's, how, here's where I've been, here's the slop I've been eating, here's the things I thought were going to make me whole, here's the things I thought were going to help me out, here's the things I thought were going to happen, and here's me, dirty and filthy. It doesn't make sense to run back to the Father's house until we recognize, man, there's people in his house he's accepted that are worse off than me. Maybe I just go back to him. But when we're, we're so focused on, on, a, on a God or a Father that goes, man, but what did you do? Did you do this? Did you do that? Did you fail to do this? Did you fail to do that? Man, that is an incredibly burdensome, inaccurate, and just struggling because I want to use a, a word that is extraordinarily complicated. I'm not going to do it because I'm not, I'm not sure about it, but I think that is such a wild inaccuracy thinking about God. I'm pained for you. Believe that, and I'm angry at the people that have put that in you. It could have done a lot of good in other ways, too. I'm not, I don't want to say, like, just because that one thing is not right, that they've failed to do a lot of other good things. But I'm angry at the people that have put that in you. Generations of people. Like our failures, the times we've run after things, the times we have stolen something because we thought it was going to make us whole, and we found ourselves empty again and again. It has caused us hesitancy, and it's caused us a reservation to take that and to just run to God with it. I think his judgment is going to be greater than his mercy. Friend, that's never the case. His judgment is never greater than his mercy. So we learn God's heart. We learn God's heart. We learn the good news that the one who sees your needs didn't just leave you in your need, but he entered into the world to come alongside you so that he could provide your needs himself. What good news. That doesn't sound, 
right? Like an like like angry, frustrated, judgmental God. That Jesus would take on the imperfections. He would leave the glory of heaven. That he'd leave the glory of perfection, lacking nothing, and enter into the broken world to know what it felt like to need something. It doesn't sound like a judgmental, angry God. It sounds like a compassionate, loving Father. What good news you and I have that in the midst of the needs that we have, the needs that we walk around desiring and longing to be met like someone thirsty in the desert, that in those moments we don't have a God that says keep finding them. Keep going. I told you so. I told you so. I told you so. But rather one that would enter into the story with us to say I'll join you in the need so that I can provide them for you. What an incredibly powerful piece of good news, friend. That through Jesus' perfect sacrifice, the life and future he earned would belong to those who trust and follow him, even those who have failed to trust and follow him at various points in our lives. That he would complete, that he would fulfill, that he'd be the perfect vision of what life looks like, guiding and navigating through our needs and burdens, that he would fulfill it for you, knowing that the frail heart that you have, the frail heart that I have, the one that's broken and messed up and needy could be brought to him and fully accepted as though you were the perfect image of Jesus himself. What incredibly good news. Again, that doesn't sound like a demanding and angry God. It sounds like a loving, compassionate father. When we learn our hearts and we begin to understand our needs, and then we learn the father's heart, we learn God's heart, right? It becomes I think, I think it, it can guide us into a place of, of what it actually looks like to bring our hearts to God. But when you, one of them is off, when it's like, I think I really want a car. I'm sorry I'm using car as an example. It's really not a good example, but it's just the easiest one I can keep thinking of. When we don't do the work of going, what do I actually want here? We're going, I want a car. And then we're going, God is so disappointed in me. We're sitting there going, man, God, I'm so sorry that you're so angry about my desire for a car, and the whole rest of the story is getting washed off to the side. How tragic is that? So learn our hearts. Learn God's hearts. Learn God's heart. Sorry. Um, what does that look like? I think three application points I want to offer you before we close up today. Uh, three quick ideas. The first one, uh, I'm really, I'm, I'm okay at this, but I need to get better at this. Some of y'all are really good at it, and I want to applaud you. And I want to ask that you would help all of us get better at this. Journal your big feelings. Like bring them. When you feel them, get them on paper. If you go to a counselor, if you go to, some, if you go to community, if you go to small group, and you kind of just have that thing where it's like, I think I felt this, blah, 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 and you're just shooting from the hip, you're again presenting like a half-baked story. Journal some of those big feelings so that when you do have a chance to bring them to God, you do have a chance to bring them to community, you have a chance to bring them to mental health professional, that, that you would actually have an accurate understanding of what's going on. So journal big feelings. The other one is this, and, and this seems contradictory to what I think I am. Uh, you're going to think it's contradictory, but it's not. Uh, second thing, I think I want to encourage you to repent. I want to encourage you to repent. What does that mean? It means taking responsibility for the fact that you have pursued what only God can offer in other things. And the reality is, like me, you have gone so, gone so far to try and steal those things. Whether it's fibbing about what you've, what you've done, whether it's trying to lie to get the approval of another person, whether it's cheating on a, on a test in school, whether it's, you know, lying on some type of paperwork, no matter what it is, 
right? No matter what it is, take responsibility for the fact that you did that, that that's what your heart was after. And when you go to God, bring the fact that that, that was a broken, misguided, and sinful mistake. Here's the thing. Bringing that to a compassionate father is very different than bringing that to an unrelentingly judgmental, far-out God. Those are two different things. I'll never forget, I will never forget the day that I got arrested for possession of certain floral substance. (laughs) I was 12 years old, uh, and I had been farting around in that world for a minute. I would continue to fart around that world for several years to come. But the point is that in that day, I remember I got arrested. They pulled me out in front of the entire school, it felt like, because the, the, the bell for the lunch had rang. And I was getting pulled out in handcuffs, and all the kids passed by were just looking at me. And there was that part of me that kind of felt a little proud because I wanted to be a little thug. And then I sat down in the car, and the first thing I thought about was that man back there and that woman. I thought about what they were going to think about me. I'll never forget being so overwhelmingly afraid of what my father was going to say. And when I sat down and told him, and he looked at me and basically said, we're going to get through this together, I love you. It was like nothing I had ever experienced before in my life. That's what I'm telling you when I say responsibility for something and bringing it toward the loving hands of God. The father is very different than the image you have in your head. So repent, take responsibility, and bring that thing to God. And the third thing is this, that surround, I forgot what I wrote down. I, don't know what it's, I know the idea, but I want to make sure I quote it right. Dig into material that can influence your view of God. Dig into material that can influence your view of God. Why do I think this is important? Because when I tell you to read the Bible, however you have read the Bible historically is probably how you're going to read the Bible still. So if you have a view of God being angry and judgmental, you're going to go read the Bible and you're going to find pieces where he's angry and judgmental. That's going to be what you do because that's, your, that's, your, that's, how you, that's, your, that's your skill. That's your muscle. That, that's what it is. You don't even know there's other, you don't even know there's really other exercises to do, to be honest. You just read it like, I guess this is who God is. So when I tell you to go read the Bible and that's all you know how to do, then you're going at it kind of handicapped. I would encourage you to do something like, like read the Bible, read it along with a resource that helps redefine our vision of God. I think a great resource in that way, uh, some of you guys have, have referenced it, and I just got a chance to read, I only read about half of it so far, uh, is Dane Ortland's Gentle and Lowly. Is his name Dane Ortland? Is that his name? Okay. Uh, man, I've read half of that book so far, and I absolutely loved it. I thought it was incredible. Uh, it allowed me the space to kind of take things that I already was working out on my own, but to give so much, like, breath and wind to them. And if you have, have struggled to approach God in the ways that I've talked about God for the past probably year or so, uh, I would say that that book is a great space to begin getting an introductory course to the God I'm talking about, who I think is the God of the Bible. Uh, another uh, kind of not the same but, but similar is a book called uh, Mi Casa Uptown. It's by a guy named Rich Perez from New York. And he, he really, it's a, it's a book about his own experience going back to his hometown, which is Washington Heights in New York. He's a Dominican guy and starting a church there. And it is beautiful. It is powerful. It, it, wrecked, it wrecked me in ways that I have probably yet to recover from or fully process. And so don't just go and say, hey, God, I want to read the Bible and, and I want to try to get a better view of you. Don't just do that because you're going to end up reading the same things you've been reading. 
how to consult some people that are reading the Bible maybe a little differently than you, that, that are viewing God in this more compassionate way. So that while we hold in tension the fact that God does hate evil, we can also hold in tension the God, that God is merciful and compassionate, that that may be his most defining character. So with that, let's pray. Father, thank you so much uh, that the command to, to not steal uh, is one that you use to protect property. It's one that you use to protect us. Uh, it's one that you desire for us not to uh, partake in, in terms of stealing because you don't want us to, you've given us a right to have property and, and all those things, but yet the temptation, the idea of stealing actually points us in our hearts toward something that's more profound. It points us to a deeper need a set of needs that only you can actually meet. Thank you, Father, that while we get to learn those things, while we learn of our own needs, we're also invited to bring those needs to you, knowing that you are not an angry, far-off divine figure that shuns us or treats us with shame, but rather you invite the depths of our brokenness to be consoled and loved and mended by you. So thank you. Thank you, Father. We love you. Help us to navigate those things well. Help us to learn more about ourselves. And as we learn more about you, to bring uh, our hearts to you and to, to, to participate in the dance of grace that you invite us all to participate. That right now we're invited into such a beautiful dance of grace with you. Help us. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.